But today it's my pleasure to introduce today's speaker, Alicia Isarudin. Um, she comes to us from the University of Malaya, from Jelan University, um, she, where she is a senior lecturer in the Gender Studies program. Uh, she did her doctorate at the School of Oriental and African Studies, so better known as SOAS, at the University of London in the UK. And her first book, um, which came out in 2017, is entitled Gender and Islam in Indonesian Cinema. Um, she also has a recent publication in what's probably the most prestigious journal in uh, women's studies, Signs, the Journal of Women in Culture and Society, entitled Free Hair. I, I love that title uh, for obvious reasons. Unveiling and the Reconstruction of Self. Uh, so I commend that to all of you that uh, came out in issue 44. She also has many other publications on equally interesting topics, but I don't want to take any further time um, away from her lecture, Bureaucratic Islam and the Romance Industry in Southeast Asia. Alicia. Um, Uh, thank, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you, uh, Anne, for the really kind introduction. I'm very pleased uh, to be here to, to deliver what I would like to call my US debut. <laughs> um, I'm also so thrilled to be in the presence of new colleagues and new friends in this room. Um, so for those who have gleaned, good, um, I'm, I'm, trying, I'm trying, but I'm kind of moving around a little bit from where I'm sat, um, so I've tried to speak out a little bit more. Um, so for, for many who, uh, who might have gleaned from the title, um, might be a bit intrigued by the slightly incongruous elements in the title, <laughs> bureaucratic Islam and the romance industry, and how they might relate to each other. Um, my lecture aims at um, showing how they might relate to each other, um, but a lot more in, in demonstrating how they thrive in parallel with each other. Um, and hopefully at some point in my research to show how they might feed off each other too. Um, so the romance industry that I'm focusing on uh, occurs in Malaysia, um, which is a modern Muslim-majority uh, multicultural society with a small majority of Muslims, around 60%. Um, but despite their minority size, um, uh, I would say modest ma majority, they do have cultural and political hegemony in the country. Um, so I would also like to introduce to you what, um, what I would call bureaucratic Islam and what I would also refer to as the romance industry. Um, I'm also interested in this lecture in um, the concept of the counter-public um, as a critique of uh, Jürgen Habermas's um, concept of the bourgeois public sphere, uh, his assumptions of its singularity, uh, critique of its actors that occupy the bourgeois public sphere, um, the elevation of rationality over effect, uh, assumptions behind um, the tenuous binary between private and public. Um, but before that, I just want to provide a little bit more context, like, like the background um, and against which my lecture and overall project uh, wishes to interrogate and also challenge 
Um, so timing would have have it that the um, last week the, the Islamic feminist organization Sisters in Islam recently published a major survey on the public and private rights of Muslim women in Malaysia. And the findings were actually quite dire. Um, 700 women were interviewed for this survey and they were asked about their thoughts um, on polygamy, what rights or lack thereof they had in an Islamic marriage and their thoughts on domestic violence. Um, so these things have become stock concerns within the bigger question of um, the women question in Islam. So Sisters in Islam found that 70% um, of women agree that polygamy is permissible um, in Islam, but only 32% of that 70% would accept it within their own marriage. So it's okay for polygamy to, you know, it's acceptable, but they wouldn't want it for themselves in their own marriage. 66% um, felt they had the right to initiate a divorce if their husband married another woman. 96% of women felt they have a responsibility to obey their husbands. Um, so personally, I find it quite hard to believe that the majority of women can live like this without you know, serious harm done to their mental health. But much more pressingly, I find it hard to believe that these women do not have an outlet um, to channel their struggles and distress. So today's lecture is kind of like an educated um, conjecture and perhaps a corrective to what, what, what women might do under these kind of circumstances. Um, uh, in lives that seem constrained by this narrative of gender-based injustice and passivity. Um, so bureaucratic Islam um, is the architecture set up to govern and to make Sharia law um, much more efficient, rationalized and expanded uh, in the lives of Muslims. So the rise of this bureaucratic approach uh, to advance Islamic law and Sharia compliance in the personal, corporate, and increasingly public lives of Muslims shows how religion has adapted itself to um, modern society. And, and it has also fused with secularity, putting to rest debates about this power struggle between religion and secularism in the public sphere. Um, so under this kind of bureaucratized approaches to Islamic governance, we find this kind of fusion or marriage between secularism and Islam in that we have a marriage of secular structures and styles of management, rationality and logics, but you have religious or Islamic symbolism and embodiment. So in other words, we find the structure is secular, but the substance is Islamic. Um, and uh, so a more robust definition of what bureaucratic Islam or bureaucratization of Islam means, um, and I take this from Mazna Muhammad's work, um, it is when Islamic values, beliefs, and goals are subjected to a rationalized system accompanied by the professionalization of its legal agents, which are usually judges, um, officials in religious authority, um, moral police, and they're supported by a bureaucratic administration which could only pursue Islamic reform through secularization. And also I wanna add that religious authorities in Malaysia, they are given huge amounts of money to run the show and over and above all the other kind of administrative agencies in the country. So um, there are real gender consequences uh, for the rise of bureaucratic Islam. And I would try to make an educated guess that 
um, the romance industry sort of is symptomatic of the um, effect, the fallout, and maybe the legacy of this rise of bureaucratic Islam. Um, because bureaucratic Islam became responsible for the rolling back of Muslim women's rights under Sharia law from the mid-1980s to the 1990s. So the kind of rolling back involved the abolition of laws that made um, unilateral divorce um, easier. So it, it meant that in the 80s, um, it was more difficult for men to unilaterally divorce their wives. Um, but from the 1990s, it was a lot easier. So you could do it anywhere. You could just say, I divorced you three times and it would be effective. But in the early 1980s, it was a lot more difficult in the sense that you had to go to court to sort of say, I would like to divorce my wife. Um, so, and, um, and there were a lot more restrictions placed on men who want to marry another wife uh, concurrently um, in the early 80s. But from the mid 1980s to 1990s, it was a lot easier for men to take another wife. So the legal rollback um, placed increased obligation for women to be on their best and good behavior so that they could have access to their rights in divorce, child custody, and maintenance from their ex-husbands. Um, so of particular interest to me is how bureaucratic Islam manages marital relations. So one of the ways that bureaucratic Islam shows its power is through the mandatory marriage premarital courses that um, Muslim couples have to go through in order to be officially married. Um, and bureaucratic Islam sort of claims to be you know, um, rational, and, but it is actually really quite inflexible, and it has claims to desexualization. But the reality is it's a domain of male or masculine effect. You know, it's, a, it's a space where men could sort of openly express that, you know, I could always take another wife, and they always do it in a very humorous, jokey way. Um, they make jokes about polygamy, um, marital rape is real and it goes unpunished. Um, and there are these kind of open proclamations of sexual braggadocio um, that, that men sort of um, do. Um, and even though women are thought to be a lot more passionate, in that women are a lot more emotional, they are expected to remain silent, obedient, patient in the face of male sexual privilege and entitlement. So under these kinds of conditions um, of what I would refer to as emotional asymmetry, in the sense that men could sort of express you know, these sort of sexual prowess, but women have to sort of stay silent, even though the, the paradox is that women are thought to be a lot more emotional traditionally, um, women do find ways, you know, these are the outlets that I'm interested in, so they form these kinds of relations, practices and intimacies, in what I would argue to be an emotional counterpublic um, of the romance industry. So in other words, the modes of governance under this increasingly bureaucratized form of Islam have had unintended effects, practices and relations. And of those unintended effects and relations is the romance industry and this um, emotional counterpublic um, of care, which I will talk about towards the end of the lecture. So, um, I also want to say that the romance industry is kind of an intervention into a kind of public. Um, and I also want to disrupt this tenuous um, binary between um, emotions and rationality um, by saying that under bureaucratized religious conditions, women turn to romantic fiction because it makes sense. It makes sense for women to turn to romantic fiction uh, as a source of security and comfort. Um, so by 
going to this phrase, making sense, I'm appealing to both the rational, commonsensical meaning of the phrase, but also to the word sense, in the sense uh, that it is associated with feeling, emotions, and intuition. Um, so the Malay romance industry can be sort of encapsulated, because I want to introduce to you this romance industry, what it really means, but I could do that by um, showing you like a case study um, of a woman who participated in my fieldwork, uh, who I will call um, Murni. So Murni, um, through Murni, my case study, we can appreciate the industry's drives, practices, relations, and perhaps its future. So from this point of my lecture, bureaucratic Islam will just remain in the background. It's like the contextual hum, and it won't really sort of bubble up again. So we're just going to focus mostly on the romance industry from now on. Um, so back in 2018, Muni um, attended a focus group discussion I organized. Um, and it was, a, it was a focus group discussion specifically for women who were either married, divorced, um, but they were single mothers and above the age of 30. It sounds a bit arbitrary, but um, I found out that if you're a young reader of romance fiction from the age of 18 up to your mid-20s, the kind of books that you read were quite different. So if you're older, uh, married, the kind of books you look for tend to be quite different. And there is this trend um, that the stories um, tend to be increasingly sad as you get older. <laughs> so, uh, so that's one thing I've discovered. So I was interested in this kind of like demographic. Um, so Muni was very expressive. She was very articulate. Uh, she wears the hijab and she's, a, um, she's educated. She has a university degree. She's divorced with two young children, and she was single at the time uh, of the focus group discussion. She accepted my invitation to participate um, because she was very, very, very keen to share um, the pivotal role that romance fiction played in her life. So after her divorce, um, she turned to romantic fiction in a very intense way. Um, but there was a particular theme that she looked out for, and that was forced marriage, and the theme of uh, a woman triumphing um, sort of over the struggles that followed after divorce. So um, she would frequently reread fiction about female characters who have reinvented themselves after a divorce um, to regain a sense of strength for herself. Um, and the Malay term for it is kekuatan. When, when I asked her, like, why would you read romantic fiction about forced marriage? Um, she revealed that she too was a victim of forced marriage when she was younger. So shortly after she graduated from university, her mother had arranged her to marry um, a young man without her knowledge. Um, but the young man in question was a friend that she had developed a close friendship with. Um, she was initially offended, um, but she felt quite coerced to acquiesce because her father had passed away and she felt duty-bound as a filial daughter to, um, to keep her mother happy. Um, the marriage was rocky at, in the beginning, although love eventually developed between them, um, but it ended um, after the birth of their second child. That was when he started seeing other women, and, but she initially forgave him for that. 
Um, but her marriage to this man initially finally ended after her husband attempted to sexually attack her younger sister. It took her three years to finalize her divorce. Um, her ex-husband has remarried very quickly after the divorce, but Muni was single throughout the whole time. At this point in her life, three years after her divorce, she completely threw herself into uh, reading romantic fiction, and she displayed signs of reading badly during this period. So she was a single mom, she was working, um, but she would read at night on weekdays up to two to three novels a month. On weekends, reading would take over her entire day. So engrossed was she in her reading that she forgets to eat, and she only takes break to use the toilet. So she's currently writing her own, her own novel at the time, um, and it was, uh, its title is um, Madu Untuk Mama, which uh, translates to another husband for polygamous mama. So in other words, you know, this is a story about a woman who takes up another husband, and she becomes polygamous rather than the man becoming polygamous. So she claims that she's kind of writing a little bit from experience, but she insists that the novel has a slightly humorous side to it, which is a bit of an interesting sort of counter-narrative to men making jokes about polygamy. Here's a woman sort of making it humorous for a woman to be polygamous. Um, so, but the title and the subject matter is subversive and it's in conflict with orthodox inter interpretations of Islam. Only men are allowed to marry more than one woman at a time and up to four. By uh, pending the terms of polygamy, in favor of women, um, Muni takes revenge um, on the culture of silence and obedience that women like herself must endure when Malay men make a lot of jokes about their ability to take on multiple wives. So readers like Muni rely on romantic fiction to recover from forced marriage and divorce. Reading and writing weave into her intertextual self-making, which involves comparing, emulating, and contrasting herself with characters in romantic fiction, while at the same time recognizing that this is actually still fantasy. It's fiction. It's not sort of, um, uh, it's not real. Uh, and in, this is what she says. She says here, we cannot fight fate, um, but we try nonetheless to be like the characters in the novels. Like me, I try to be like the protagonist in Finding Aziza, which is her favorite novel about a woman who um, goes through a divorce, comes back fighting, um, and reinvent herself. Um, I want to attempt the ways she regains her strength, how in the end she attains what she wants. We find strength through novels. For me, novels have an impact for me, for me to move on in life. The cure comes from the novel. Novels like medicine, the best medicine is reading. So, um, so this, this thing where she says that the best medicine is reading is really interesting for me because that's where I think about, you know, um, reading as, as care, as caring, as care work. Um, so reading provides relief for women who have struggled with the aftermath of betrayal and divorce. Um, but reading for Murni constitute a passionate attachment um, to narratives that lead to accusations of female access. So if you're an avid reader of romantic fiction, you might be accused of feeling too much, having too much emotions, reading too many books, um, and you read big books that are too big. I mean, some of these books are over a thousand pages long. Um, 
And then they are distracting her away from her domestic responsibilities. So the cultural work of reading romance fiction and its injunction to readers to be good and self-abnegating Muslim women can be productively juxtaposed with the sacred place of reading in Islam. So the Arabic word for reading is ikra, and has been translated to mean to learn, to recite, proclaim, and understand. Reading is the centerpiece in Surah Al-Alaq in the Quran and marks a touchstone in the history of Islam. So, um, so this is really interesting. I just want to sort of like juxtapose um, sort of the Islamic element um, and making reading not such a sort of terrible thing, even though you read a lot of it. So um, I want to go to like how romantic fiction uh, is a site for a community and micro celebrity. Um, so I, I talked previously about Muni, and she's definitely not unique. And she comes, she is a product of state-sponsored development um, and, you know, modernization uh, and increased access for women's, um, women's education. So they are all beneficiaries of a state project to rapidly modernize Malay, the Malay population that began in the 1970s in which women gained um, increased access to higher education in numbers that ended up exceeding men in university in higher education. Um, industrialization opened up very, uh, a lot of opportunities for wage employment, urban migration, and social mobility for women. Um, the role of educated Malay Muslim became reinvented in the service of capitalist accumulation, especially in the 1980s. Um, and the twin demands of reproductive domesticity and wage employment. So at this period of time from the 1980s onwards, women became caught in between um, demands of development, but at the same time, they mustn't forget you know, their primary roles as wives and mothers. So romantic fiction is um, really interesting for me because um, it's, it's over-determined. Um, just like the subject of women in Islam is kind of overdetermined by hegemonic assumptions that's usually couched in this discourse of passivity, agency, resistance. But actually, there is a really more interesting way to talk about romance fiction by looking beyond the text and looking at the community of readers, writers, and publishers. So um, the crime genre um, has an unexpected overlap with romantic fiction um, in that crime fiction also has a lot of female readers. Um, so why would the crime genre, known for its depiction of brutality and sexual violence against women, would have so many female fans? So it's because both genres, the romance and the crime genre, are sort of a kind of safe space uh, for women to take back control of the narrative. Uh, where justice and happy endings not found in life could be assured by the end of the story. They could be enjoyed and enjoyed again and again through multiple reading. So the popularity of romantic fiction in Malaysia can be explained as a form of resistance and rejection of Western-style romance also. Um, so Western-style romance in the eyes of readers um, is that it's usually quite stereotyped as overtly permissive. Um, in its depiction of premarital intimacy. But despite its oppositional orientation to Western-style romance, 
um, there is still, again, overlaps between like the Malay romance and the Western romance in terms of like how it's viewed by the general public. People still consider it very trashy, trivial, not serious. Um, and it has this idealistic preoccupation with love and often an ambivalent construction of female sexuality. But those who are working within the genre, they see things very differently. They see romantic fiction as a source of guidance, moral guidance. Um, and uh, it's a, they, are, they are books of wisdom and advice. Um, so there, there are numerous sort of cross-cultural examples. And so in Nigeria, um, romantic fiction, they offer moral advice, moral guidance to readers uh, on overcoming crisis in their love and family life. Um, so a historical view of women writers, you know, show like a negative bias anyways. So anything that's dominated by women tend to have sort of this negative bias. So the romantic fiction that I'm looking at in Malaysia has, is dominated by female authors. Um, but love stories can be traced right to the beginning of the modern fiction, modern novel in Malay. So the first one was written in, uh, published in 1925. It's called The Story of Farida Hanum, and it was written by a male writer, uh, Sheikh Al-Hadi. Um, the novel was inspired by 20, early 20th century Muslim reformist movement. It was actually set in Egypt rather than uh, in Malaya at the time. And it's a story about um, you know, the importance of women's education and emancipation from traditional customs. But it wasn't the most progressive story. Um, so Malay women novelists only made a later appearance um, in the 1960s. And then Malay literature went into decline. Um, and it was revived again in the form of the popular romantic fiction in the early 2000s. And the novel that sort of triggered this revival was a novel called Waves of Longing, published in 2002. And this novel was incre increasing, was very problematic. It was a romanticization of sexual violence and forced marriage. Um, and but because of the popularity of this particular novel, it sort of led to novels of similar stories, similar themes of forced marriage, sexual violence, marital rape. Um, and this was a very sort of confounding period in sort of Malay popular literature. But it indicates a union between this marketing strategy. So a lot of people are interested in this, you will produce more books like this. Um, but there's also this lurid fascination with this contradiction of Malay womanhood. So contemporary Malay fiction in Malaysia is conceptualized as an industry. Um, so rather than focus as you know, individual pleasure, romance industry um, sort of positions female desire. And I use female desire because a lot of these novels um, sort of are about men, the kind of men that they like. Um, that they don't find in real life. So the titles themselves also are about men. Um, so these are mostly heterosexual romance fiction. Um, so the romance industry is also this transactional complex of social and commercial relations in which the role of reader, author, and publisher overlap. Um, because authors and publishers usually start out as readers themselves. Um, and, and as readers, they try with varying degrees of success to become writers of romantic fiction. Um, so women, as I was saying, they dominate the romantic genre and they overturn a long history of male domination in Malay language 
literary and fiction writing. Um, popular romance novels can sell up, up to 100,000 copies per title. So in addition to storytellers, romance authors perform as successful moral gatekeepers. Through the novels, they'll tell you how to be a good woman. Um, and because readers, um, writers usually start out as um, readers, there is that kind of democratic quality of romantic fiction. And uh, an example would be this image here. Um, so the lady in the middle uh, in the orange hijab, um, she, her name is Chittet, and she's a best-selling romance fiction author. Um, she's based in Kuantan, which is um, a big um, city in the middle of the peninsula. Um, and uh, she is a middle-aged housewife with very minimal work experience. Um, she hails from a working-class family, and her highest educational attainment is a school leaver certificate at 18. After she left school, she went to work uh, as a supermarket cashier for three months, and then she married, and she started writing her novels. And she became a you know, huge financial success, um, although modest if we compare you know, like how much money people make or not so much here. <laughs> um, so, so, from, so she's written about four novels, and she's, um, she's um, sort of gained around 5,000 uh, 5, US dollars from 10% of sales in a span of four years. So her most popular novels about female sacrifice and forced marriage, she says, are not based on personal experience, but they're kind of like constructed from like pure fantasy. Um, so other popular novels are middle-class women who mine from their own personal experience and expertise as lawyers and university lecturers. Um, and they craft these quite realistic and educational love stories, much praised by their readers. So this kind of literary practice is shown to be methods of public expression and self-modernity for women who are you know, poorer work, from poorer working-class backgrounds. And we see this trend in the Malay, in Southeast Asia, in Indonesia. We have um, domestic workers who also turn to online public forums to write stories on, on online forums, and they also write novels about their lives, their aspirations, and also activism. Um, how much time have I got left? I think I've, I've probably spoken about half an hour. OK, super. Um, so I want to go now to the infrastructure that makes our romance industry possible. Um, and this is what I call the infrastructure of an emotional counterpublic. Um, so for the past three years, there's a place that I go to every April uh, for two weeks. And it's the Kuala Lumpur International Book Fair. So this image doesn't quite capture sort of the sights and sound of this book fair. Um, but this is the biggest literary event of the year. And um, women, young and old, they come dragging their suitcases with wheels, waiting to fill them up with romance novels by the end of the day. Um, the venue um, is the Putra World Trade Center, which is this enormous building. It's a place of cultural and political prestige. Um, it's located right next to the headquarters of the Malay Nationalist Party, so the place itself is quite prestigious. Um, the book fair has become a pilgrimage site for readers, or pilgrims of romance, as I call them. From all around the country, they come here every year 
where they will meet and pay their respects to their favorite authors. They come bearing gifts. Uh, they take photos, they hug, they kiss, embrace their authors, and they also listen to their authors talk in person, offering life advice. So, um, so this is the primary site for romance fiction, but there are also other material spaces um, for the romance industry. So the other one would be, okay, it's not happening. Because um, the next slide is really quite important. Um, I just wanted to. That's what it always. Uh, <laughs> it's gonna give when you see it. Oh, here we are. Okay, super. Okay. Um, so all throughout my field research, um, I. I they, they may be um, large files. That's why. It's okay. Yeah, they are. They're just mostly images. Um, so all throughout the duration of my field research, I, I maintain contact with. Um, the uh, publisher and owners of this publishing company called Cassie Aries. Um, they, they've been in business for the last 10 years, and they also run this romance cafe um, seen here on the left um, called Reader's Heaven and Coffee. Um, on their team are women. It was co-founded by two sisters, um, and the, the sisters are partners, and their friends are their sales promoters, reviewers, and editors. Um, all of the women in Kasi areas, they're middle-aged Malay Muslim women. They wear the hijab. They're university educated. They're very articulate, very literate, and they're also avid readers of romance fiction. Um, they, they run the company and meet daily here in uh, Reader's Heaven um, and Coffee. And it's located in Bandar Barubangi, which is this pioneering Islamic township um, on the west coast of Peninsular Malaysia with an overwhelmingly Muslim middle-class population. Um, the cafe is one of the few bookshops and publishers in this quite Islamic shopping district frequented by female patrons who are there mostly to buy luxury hijabs and prayer garments. So Reader Heaven, Readers Heaven and Coffee sells only romance fiction. Uh, nearly all of the books are in the Malay language. It is a space um, for its owners, co the co-founder, and for readers to come and talk about love uh, in a way and learn about sort of um, what it means to sort of indulge themselves in ideas and narratives and practices of love. So that is the sort of catch phrase. Um, for the publisher, it's all about love. Kasi means kasi means love. Um, <coughs> so, I think this is quite an important moment for me to talk about like cross-cultural interpretations of love. I mean, because um, it it isn't really what you think it is, um, and <laughs> so and it's it's not right to sort of interpret. Um, what we think is like a universal emotion and then sort of impose our understanding of what love is into another place. So there's um, increasing scholarship on um, problematizing um, meanings of love. And um, the desire for love and companionate marriage is often seen as this kind of universal phenomenon, but actually it's seen as this kind of like um, globalized um, ideal that you know, people aspire to modernity, talk about like wanting to marry based on their own choices. 
Um, but I also want to focus on a more culturally specific idea of love in the Malay society. So the etymological origin for the word love in Malay is cinta. And, um, and it comes from the Sanskrit word um, cinta to mean thought or to mean to care. Um, etymologically, it suggests a link between reflecting on something and the act of love. And from its semantic roots, love is meant to be something edifying. Um, and it's meant to be intellectually uplifting. Even though the titles of the novels that I haven't had time to share with you, they don't come across as very edifying. Um, but nonetheless, though, like chinta or love is, is good, good to think with. And also the word care um, from its original Sanskrit meaning is also something very important because that's where I'm going to go to at the end on counter publics of care. Um, so the role of thought and reflection in romantic love, uh, as opposed to the physical and material relations um, of love, is sort of discussed in a lot of length in Wazir Jahan Karim's groundbreaking research and the discourse of emotions in traditional Malay society. So traditionally, articulations of intimate romantic emotions um, become intensified um, in, during courtship. And it's usually mediated through poetry and song. Uh, because the naked expression of love and desire is typically frowned upon, uh, courting couples use verse as a way of communicating you know, their love for each other. However, in romantic fiction, um, articulations of love and desire is a lot less poetic. Um, readers prefer like an everyday register of um, of love and re everyday registers of narrative and a dialogue rather than this flowery and poetic approach. Um, so it goes on to show that this combination of realism, transparency, and non-elitism is appealing to highly literate readers who are actually very keen to identify with the text, with the characters, with the context, and find some kind of direct resonance in the text. Um, so, which brings me to like the penultimate section um, of my talk, um, romance fiction as an ethic of care. Um, so, romance industry uh, and the writing of romance fiction has proven itself to be quite somewhat non-hierarchical. Um, there is an emphasis on interrelations and community building. Um, and so, these are sort of it contributes to the, to the genre's success um, and the centrality to the reader's lives. And, and as a counterpublic, it's addressed to them as Muslims, as students, as workers, mothers, and wives. So through the romance fiction's ability to provide relief, comfort, security, solidarity, and also hope for readers, it enables possibilities for decentering and subverting male protectionism as a source of care in Islam. This is to say that there are alternatives in which women can also provide care for other women. Um, so perhaps this view of romantic fiction as a moral enterprise in its effective motivations, emphasis on relations, and implicit critique of women's status in society coheres really well with Carol Gilligan's concept of the ethic of care. So um, and I take a quote which I kind of really like from, oh, there we go. 
Um, so from a justice perspective, she, she sort of compares the concept of justice and care. Um, so from a justice perspective, the self as moral agent stands as a figure um, against the ground of social relationships, judging the conflicting claims of self and others against the standards of equality. From a care perspective, the relationship becomes the figure, defining self and others within the context of relationships. I think there's a bit of a typo there. The self as a moral agent perceives and responds to the perception of need. So Carol uh, Cara Gilligan's ethic of care arises from her critique of justice that places centrality on the autonomous individual as an active agent. The ethic of care here is exemplified in romance fiction by the concern to care for others, provide care, prevent harm, moral relationships with others. So the authors do care about their readers a lot. So this ethic of care is mediated through and transcends the romantic text through community building, interpersonal relations with writers, opportunities for readers to become writers themselves, and the material infrastructure that make emotional counterpublics possible. So um, in conclusion, it's a very big file, so it takes a little while for it to transition to the next thing. Okay. Okay, there we are. Um, so, romance fiction could not have succeeded without high levels of female literacy, and high levels of education and access to education. High rates of female literacy in Malaysia contribute in direct and indirect ways to this formation of like this emotional counter uh, public. Reading and writing have become tools for the empowerment of women. And reading in particular is being, you know, being a sacred injunction creates conditions for romantic fiction to produce and foster social literary relations across socioeconomic class backgrounds. Um, so to conclude this, I also want to say that the process of selling and buying emotions, because this is what romance industry does, um, it's a transfer of effective resources from the booksellers who act as arbiters of romantic taste. So the booksellers will profile readers and say, I think I know what you like. And then you know, they will recommend things. And they would recommend things to who they see as an emotionally deprived party. Women who feel unfulfilled, who seek solutions to their personal problems and have a strong desire for emotion and romantic thrill, romantic text activates emotions in the reader. The thicker the book, the more emotional enjoyment the reader will feel. It, will, it also facilitates emotional self-sufficiency um, in women who feel deprived in their marriage. For these reasons, <clears throat> romantic fiction contributes to the uh, creation of the counter-public uh, counter of care. So if the aim of religious bureaucracies is the production of emotional asymmetry, of male sexual dominance and female silent obedience within the institution of most Muslim marriage, and the production of a hegemonic public in which these values preponderate, then its counterweight is the romance industry, which harnesses the cultural script of women being overly emotional, or the female emotional excessiveness for its own ends and through productive means, through community building, storytelling, and the no less ambition project of reworking womanhood itself through 
the counterpublic of care. Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm okay, I'm good, yeah. Okay. Um, and you ready for questions? Yes, I am. Yes, all right. Um, um, wow. <laughs> That was such an elegant and um, provocative presentation. I can't wait to hear what questions people have. I think, um, well, we are filming this, so we will ask you to speak your question into the microphone, uh, which I can run around to you. And, um, and also, if you could introduce yourself, that would be great. So um, any questions? Yeah. Ursula Cargill. Uh, my question has to do um, with your care an analysis. Um, I wonder if the um, the romance, the fiction industry, um, whether the the if you could um, rate or prioritize three factors: um, the economic enterprise that comes from this industry, mm -hmm. or the conditioning or indoctrination um, into like. Um, this whole system of forced marriage or an avenue for autonomy for the women in terms of going out or even writing, if you were to pri prioritize those three, which one would you put as like the most significant and, the, and to the least? Thank you. Um, so the third factor would be? Um, avenue, for, avenue for autonomy. Avenue for autonomy. Um, so the second is I'm um, sorry. conditioning or indoctrination. Mm. It's I really think. hard to tell which goes, which is prioritized. I wouldn't say the first one, econ economic um, sort of success as a writer, comes into the picture at all, um, because um, a lot of readers don't make a lot of money from writing novels. Um, the writers don't make a lot of money from. Um, writing and publishers don't normally make a lot of money either. Um, and when they do, it's um, it's quite modest. Um, but part of the appeal would be this sense of micro celebrity that they gain uh, amongst their community of fans. So the indoctrination, I, that's a really strong word to use. Um, but perhaps that is the thing that I would prioritize in the sense in that these women are taught that this is what they should be as women, you know, through this discussion I had in the early part of my lecture on the, the role of religious bureaucracy in creating, you know, what is the idea of the ideal wife and mother. Um, and they are very inflexible ideas. Um, and I didn't mention in the lecture but, um, but in the forthcoming book written by Mazna Muhammad on um, Islamic bureaucracies and marriage, um, the marital courses for women do not talk about love at all. So the importance of love between husband and wife is not mentioned at all. Um, and that's in the Malaysian situation because she does a comparative study um, of premarital marriage courses um, in Singapore. And the, the Singaporean uh, marriage courses for Muslim couples do talk about the concept of eternal love. 
Um, so there is something about this sort of cultural indoctrina indoctrination in Malaysia that leads to women feeling hungry for love, it seems. So this idea of love seems to be very important, but missing in, in sort of like the official narratives and sort of the right ways of being a woman. Like you, you were feeling deprived of love. So I think that would be the, the thing that I would prioritize. Oh, wow. I'm, I'm just going to start here and we're going to kind of go around. Um, thank you, Alicia. Oh, uh, I'm Nurul Huda and I'm a visiting fellow at the program on law and society in the Muslim world at Harvard Law School. Uh, thank you, Alicia, for the great talk. I really enjoyed it. Um, I have two related questions. One is. Um, if we could return to your informant, uh, Morni, who's mm -hmm. an avid reader, but also an aspiring writer who fantasizes about polyandry, like having two or more um, male partners or husbands. Mm -hmm. um, I was very fascinated by this because in my study of Malay polygamy, it was very unusual to encounter women who actually found polyandry very uh, appealing. In fact, <laughs> they would prefer to divorce one and go to the next man rather than have multiple men at, men at the same time. Yeah. So I wonder how prevalent uh, fantasies of polyandry are among the women that you studied, which brings me to my second question. Um, if these romance novels uh, serve as like a, uh, like a way to cultivate fantasies about love, romance, marriage, uh, what are the limits of it? Uh, I mean, do these... Uh, Novels uh, talk about sex, for example, mm -hmm. are, which are very uh, taboo subject in Malay society, mm -hmm. or uh, do they uh, explore different kinds of love, like maybe homosexual love? So I'd love to hear your thoughts. Thank you. Um, polyandry is um, probably unthinkable uh, for a lot of women anywhere, not necessarily in the context we're talking about today. Um, so only Muni spoke about polyandry and wanting to write about this in her novel. Um, and um, I, I don't see any other examples. However, I would say though there, there are a lot of novels that do focus about the kind of men that they would like. And having spoken to publishers and writers, they talk about um, men who are idealized, idealized men in the fiction would be men who play a more active role in the household doing more domestic responsibilities and showing a lot more affection uh, physically and through words. Um, these are the kind of idealized Im images of men. Um, but the interesting thing is that um, I think it's men, one man at a time, um, but there are multiple competing male rivals for the romantic attention for these women that are explored in this fiction, but the, the end is, is sort of monogamous. Um, but I think there's an increasing trend, if I just want to go slightly, you know, slightly tangential direction, would be to say that um, the, the kind of men that they're interested in also come from a variety of socioeconomic backgrounds. So it's not just sort of a very wealthy man. There are also men who are farmers, uh, shepherds, um, roadside food vendors, street food vendors, who are also idealized as you know, potential romantic interests for these women. Going to your second question, um, which is on the, so um, 
the, the, the site, which is Cassia Areas that I go back to um, for the research, they have um, very clear guidelines on how to write romantic fiction. Uh, there's absolutely no depiction of premarital sexuality. So for this reason, a lot of novels start with marriage first, then the romance comes in, um, rather than sort of this Western I idea of romance where it's love and romance and then it ends with marriage. So the reason why you start with marriage is that it provides a sort of permissible condition for female intimacy, male-female relations to happen under, you know, halal permissible conditions. Um, and but the thing is, when we do talk about sexuality, um, that is quite prevalent in romantic fiction. is It's often sort of quite violent as well. So there's a lot of sexual violence uh, in these stories. And when I talk to readers who like reading these kinds of stories, it's for them, they say that, you know, they will always say, it's never happened to me. I've never been, a, you know, a victim of forced marriage or a victim of rape. But they use the text as a way of learning what if they do become victims of rape, then the novels provide a way of sort of coming to terms with these kind of things. Um, so, but also um, publishers tend to have like a page where they, they, they call out, you know, aspiring writers. If you're interested in publishing with us, um, these are the rules. So no sex, no sort of politics, no controversial, not even homosexuality is allowed. There are more. Okay. Um, good afternoon, Professor Zahadine. It's a pleasure to um, have heard your work, and it's really invigorated a lot of my thought. My name is Nicole Carreri. I'm a second-year PhD student um, at BU, working with Professor Kishali as my advisor. Um, so I work on gender. One of I have many questions. So I'm so. Glad to have the opportunity to be stimulated and to think in different ways from your work. One of them is <clears throat> when we look at, for example, the notion of males desire and we have in the news recently how the king of thailand for example has you know uh, stripped his consort of her official titles um, and looking at the ways in which men's desire and intimacy is almost elevated to this uh, you know royal status i'm curious since you discussed the the original word for love chinta where and how can we understand men's idea of romance, desire, intimacy within the Malay mm. um, cultural domain? Yeah. Including things like consorts and, you know, where do they find this intimacy and romance? So I think it would be quite a sort of syncretic idea of like what love is that's influenced by perhaps this ideal of male sexual entitlement. You know, they have, they are entitled to multiple women once. Um, the sense of dominance that women can't, uh, men can't be denied their sexual desire. Um, and at the same time, there are also sort of Malay cultural influences that come from the past, but perhaps disappearing, which is the idea of complementarity between women and men. There are um, cultures within Malay society that are matrilineal traditionally, in which um, you know, inheritance is passed down through the women and um, men move in with women, women's homes. But this is fast disappearing. It doesn't really exist anymore. So it's, it's a combination of a number of things. And, um, but the word chinta 
is not really sort of thought about in the original Sanskrit idea anymore, which is thought and care. But I would like to say, though, that that the concept of love, because I do talk about this with you know the people who I interview and in focus group discussions, and I ask them, and they're women. I, I don't interview men, um, but I only sort of get a glimpse of what they think men think. Um, and they're very different things, but they are very open to an expanded definition of what love should be. So they talk about like, it's not necessarily between men and women. It's not necessarily an erotic love. It could be, you know, love between friends, love that you have for your family. Um, so, but usually that's coming from younger people who probably are inexperienced with, you know, the reality of romantic love. Um, so, I would say for men, maybe it's a sense of entitlement and uh, this implicit dominance is acceptable. Um, they have the right to demand affection, um, sexual attention from women. Um, and that's where I, you know, I, I sort of try to create this concept of like emotional asymmetry. Um, that's how I would answer that. So I think I'm there. just gonna, I'm gonna, Okay. Finish one circle and then we'll start another circle. So. Great. Thank you oh, so much. Oh, thank you so much for your talk. Um, I, I think you make a really compelling argument about the emotional work that the Malay romance industry is doing. And I want to ask you about the practice of reading um, and what is the role of that in all of this? What is it about reading, especially because you're an expert in different forms of media, particularly cinema studies? Mm -hmm. So what is it about the practice of reading that makes it a particularly effective mode of doing this kind of emotional work? Mm -hmm. That's a really great question. Um, I think in classical media studies, you know, people talk about reading as like hot media because it requires so much of attention. Um, unlike if you're listening to the radio and you're watching a film, you could do it in a very passive way. So reading entails this sort of active engagement and it's, and it's a lot of time invested. And these women are very willing to invest a lot of it um, to the detriment to you know, a lot of other things that are happening in their lives. Um, and they're very happy to reread these giant books too. And they read it very fast. And I have been asked this question before, like what actually happens during the moment of reading? You know, I mean, I'm not going to do like some kind of experimental sort of psych uh, psychological experiment where I put sort of like these um, <laughs> wires on their heads to sort of measure levels of like hormonal activity to figure out. But um, I think it, it's that, um, it's, it's that alone time that women have. It's kind of this bubble that they create for themselves. It's, it's hermetically sealed from you know, the, their life struggles and distress. Um, that, that's the kind of work that romantic fiction is doing. Um, and it's really fascinating, I find, because it seems to push out all the other aspects to what it means to be a woman that's supposed to be very important, like being a mother, looking after your kids, doing domestic responsibility, all of that is pushed aside so that these women could do the work of reading. Thanks very much. So I, you've presented this phenomenon of romance culture as so unique to a particular ethnicity mm -hmm. in Malaysia, but Malaysia is a multi-ethnic society. And I wondered, is there a, 
is there a romance reading culture in Cantonese, in English? Are books translated from one language to another, mm -hmm. or from one ethnic group to another? And is, the traction, is there traction or is there appeal in these other groups in the society for this type of literature? Hmm. I, I can't sort of adequately answer that question because I haven't actually paid enough attention to other languages. Um, but I could say that um, I think because even though Malaysia is a multicultural society, Malay people have this kind of cultural dominance that's disproportionate um, in the public sphere. So that means that when you go to the bookshops, for instance, you don't really see a lot of other languages. You see a lot of English language books, for sure. And they're not typically translated into other languages because there is an assumption that a lot of people will be educated and understand English. Um, but the other big language is the Malay language. Um, sort of Mandarin, Chinese languages are would be considered a minority language. Um, I, you know, I I'm I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised at all that there would be romantic fiction in other languages, whether it's Tamil language or Chinese language. It's just that I haven't. I haven't paid attention to them, I'm afraid. <laughs> Thank you so much, Professor. Um, my name is Amira. Um, I'm a student here at HDS. Um, I'm Indonesian, so I find this presentation very, very interesting. I actually remember as a teenager when um, Ayat Ayatinza came out, uh, just to contextualize this novel, it's, um, it literally translates uh, as love versus with an Islamic connotation. And it's a very romantic novel about polygamy and the beauty of polygamy. Um, and the characters are like young people. And that was sort of the first time that there was a paradigm shift, I feel like, in my community that polygamy and this type of Islamized romance became so appealing in the society. So um, my question is, what do you think are the cultural implications that this type of Islamized uh, romance play in the lives of Muslim youth, especially today in Malaysia? Um, just to quickly talk about the Indonesian context, uh, love and romance in Indonesia amongst youth at the moment, it's it's very sort of interesting you know, phenomenon happening in Indonesia right now. There are multiple youth movements on the one hand, pushing for you know sort of this mutual respect between um, couples, but also there is this rising sort of conservative youth movements that are sort of about not knowing who you're marrying. You just marry, then you find out about who your partner is, um, and that's kind of like a very pro-youth marriage, like young marriage movement. Um, and ayat um, ayat cinta. Uh, or Verses of Love um, has a sort of huge ripple effect um, in the region um, because it's a very unusual book and it became adapted to a very successful film. Um, and, um, and the reason why it caught this sort of huge attention was because um, here is polygamy being romanticized and it was sort of targeted to young readers. It was written by men. Um, and uh, who was part of this literary group. And, um, and the interesting thing is that it ends with monogamy. <laughs> it, doesn't end, it doesn't end with polygamy. So it's, it's about a man who has competing female attentions who are vying for his love. Um, he's, like, he's an Indonesian man who is in Egypt. He's studying in Al-Azhar University. And while he's there, all these women 
and he's an ordinary looking guy. He's nothing spectacular to look at. But um, so there's an Egyptian woman, there are a few Indonesian female students who are also studying there with him and they're all throwing themselves at him. And so he is in this moral dilemma. How does he choose? And then he realizes, ah, in Islam, I can have multiple women. But, the, the, but how it ends is interesting because somehow this idea of monogamy eventually prevails. But there was a moment of like um, polygamous, um, a polygamous situation where he marries a Christian copt woman uh, Coptic woman and um, from Egypt, and um, and it was her dying wish to marry him, and he married her on her deathbed, and they were very briefly polygamous. <laughs> so that is the kind of romantic ideal <laughs> in in the story, but it ends with it it does end with um, uh, monogamy, and he marries a, a lady who is you know behind a niqab. So that was also quite a um, a, a major. Uh, sort of paradigm shift in Indonesian cinema where this is the first time you see somebody in a veil. For a long time, there was no, even though, you know, Indonesia has got the biggest Muslim population. I think maybe after India or second to India. Alicia, thank you so much. So the, you know, I, what I find so interesting and compelling in your work is that you are beginning, taking us from this emphasis on love to care. Mm -hmm. Right, and so that's a really interesting arc, and you know, lots of things sort of get opened up as a result of it. And one of my, sort of two questions come to my mind, and one is where, um, in a sense, you're doing this careful reading of the concept of love and where it comes from, and sort of its multiple genealogies. And in fact, would it make sense to refocus that around care? Right, sort of what care looks like, mm -hmm. and in terms of you know the question about male desires, or um, other ways of sort of thinking about it. To what degree, or even the fact the, you know the the guidelines, the premarital guidelines, to what degree they may not mention love, but how do they actually talk about care? Mm -hmm. Right. So yeah. sort of, I wonder to what degree it may be interesting to sort of see care as the. Overarching the, the overarching strand. Mm -hmm. And that also then raises the second question for me, which has to do with the homoerotic. And again, I understand that the guidelines don't, you know, the writerly guidelines don't permit it. Mm -hmm. But I wonder if you could say sort of where in this whole, um, in these relationships of caring that are built, um, where we might be able to read homoeroticism, right? Mm -hmm. And the caring, it seems to me, goes from, the self-care when you're reading the novel, right? And you shut yeah. off everything to the kind of communities that you are giving us glimpses into, mm -hmm. um, to the characters of these novels. So right through to what degree can we read forms of homoeroticism mm -hmm. that are central to how care is imagined? Yeah, Thank those you. are really great questions, Jyoti. I love them. Um, so I... I'm trying to look at care rather than love, mainly because love is just one of those over-determined things also that we think we know what it is, but in a different culture, it probably means something else. But care, I think, opens up, as you say, to a lot more things. And this is where it fits in really well with what I'm looking at, in which it's a lot of, it, there's a lot of emphasis on relationships. Relationships that are formed between women that are not acknowledged enough that are not seen as important enough um, because um, we make an assumption that when we talk about romance, 
it's like the couple is the focus of this relationship. But actually, there are relationships outside the couple that seem to be very important. And they are doing a kind of emotional care work for each other. Um, and um, the second question, um, which would be, I'm sorry, I'm kind of like homoeroticism. Um, I haven't actually thought too much about that, but I do realize that, you know, the, the relationships that women sort of have with each other, there is a lot of sort of intimacy um, and these spaces. And I, I really love the picture that I, that's gone now um, in in the sort of the infrastructure of emotional counterpublic at the book fair. It's all a sea of women. It's just a homosocial space where women are enjoying the pleasure of um, reading romance with each other, finding out new things with each other. Um, and then there are two men there, and then they kind of stick out, and they look lost, and they don't look like they've <laughs> And the rest of the women in that space, they look really purposeful. They kind of like, we are here for something. And the men are like, mm, you know? So, and I, I, I kind of like that. They're, they're there with a the purpose. Um, but there is a potential for to look at... Um, love between women in this kind of expanded definition of love that I'm trying to find out also. Um, and, and that goes into sort of the, the original, the etymological origins of the word love in Sanskrit that not very many people know, but it's fascinating because it means to think about something, to care about something also. So there is that overlap. Um, not adequately answering your question, but it's something that I really like to pursue further. Hmm? Keisha Ali, Boston University. So this is so fascinating, and I have about twelve questions. Um, no, no. But to, to be continued. Uh, yes, I, I, I'm not going to ask them all, but but I hope we'll get a chance to talk more about them. Um, the one thing that I'm wondering if you can say something about, or if you've thought about, is whether. Um, in addition to thinking about bureaucratic Islam on the one hand, and then the romance writing, reading, publishing, counterpublic on the other, maybe there's a sort of third mediating category, which would be Muslim popular guidance literature, right? Mm -hmm. So thinking about the kind of pamphlets and self booklets, self-help, the, the religious literature targeting the same Malay Muslim public, mm -hmm. perhaps available in some of the same kinds of venues, that also you know, bridge the kind of formal bureaucratized state structures on the one hand, and the kind of everyday life, making sense of your circumstances, mm -hmm. um, giving you strength um, on the other. Yes, there is there is a market, I think, a literary market for that third sort of group of books, and it's the, there is an Islamic self-help sort of subgenre, um, and it's a very unusual kind of subgenre in the sense that it appeals to equally men and women, um, and there is. Um, I just want to also mention that the only thing that comes up to me is like how to be a millionaire kind of um, self-help books, and it's about this kind of, um, these are self-help books for success in life. And it, it ties in very closely with this kind of prosperity gospel idea that 
if you are very successful in life financially, you are very blessed as a person. And hopefully you will take that wealth, you know, to the afterlife through charity work and things. Um, so there, there exists, you know, this, this particular kind of subgenre, definitely. Um, and I didn't mention that at these book fairs, there are a lot of similar kinds of self-help books. And they typically, typically come out of personal experience of people who have gone through something, whether it's some kind of major life event, it's traveling or, um, you know, a rags to riches story, and then they write a book about this. And they turn it in some ways as a sort of a genre of self-help. It does exist, and they do sort of overlap somehow. Yeah. Um, Annette. So I promised to go oh, yes. this way. So, but, uh, and while I'm walking, I'm gonna take the chair's prerogative. Um, we have about five more minutes, so I'm gonna, let's, let's take um, a few questions. Sure, and I'll try um, to answer really quickly. Respond, and um, I'm just gonna throw in one that um, the first book cover you showed us had um, the high rises in the background uh -huh. and then under, then kind of beneath in the undercurrents was um, a, like a natural environment, which I presume was the, the fantasies were occurring in this realm of nature as opposed to the modernized, um, I don't remember this image. Oh, well, <laughs> so anybody, did I make this up? Okay. Uh, well, we might have to talk about it another time, yeah. but I just, uh, I, I just wondered it, how modernity factors into the whole dynamic that you're yeah. talking about. So, and let's get a couple more questions quickly on the table yeah, the, um, before we wrap up. I'm Lee now. I'm in the Department of Comparative Literature here at Harvard. Um, I also have a number of different questions, but um, we'll try to limit to, to the extent possible. Um, I would love to hear you or invite you to speak a little bit more about um, how you historicize and periodize the palliative texts that many of these contemporary women are looking to. Um, does, does it start with uh, Waves of Longing in 2002 or are um, some of the earlier romantic fictions from the 1920s and 30s actually um, mm -hmm. uh, within this longer tradition of romantic fiction, do they resurface also? Um, and in, in that regard, I'm, I'm wondering also about extensions of your work to Indonesia and how um, that might modify some of your conclusions on Malay fiction um, in this vein. In particular, um, I'm, you know, historically I'm thinking about the ways in which um, some of the early fiction of the 30s in Indonesia were, um, uh, romance fiction in particular, um, are, re retain a kind of perennial interest in Indonesian um, reading communities, uh, including uh, like Dibawa Lindungan Kaaba, for example, which recently became a film and was written by an author in the 30s who is very you know, ardently anti-polygamist. Um, so I'm wondering how you know the the perennial interest of fiction writers who um, present you know also historic challenges um, mm -hmm. to maybe what might be uh, seen as a more recent um, uh, a more recent text that that advance or open um, 
you know, or or present a more tolerant view of polygamy more recently, how that, how, how that might modify your conclusions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, also interested in how this relates to Sastrawangi and, um, mm -hmm. um, and no. not at all, okay. <laughs> or how you, would, how you would contextualize them in tandem. Yeah. I, I think we'd better give Aisha our last two minutes uh, to uh, oh. respond to any oh, of these um, questions that you want. Those are big questions that I probably don't have enough time. Um, but all I could say is that earlier works of literary fiction don't uh, prefigure in contemporary works because, as I was saying, um, there is a decline in literary Malay works and then they kind of disappear but they only reappear in sort of more edifying spaces. Um, but popular fiction seemed to come not so much out of an ether, like a vacuum, but it's sort of, um, they, they do come, if they're written by middle-aged women, they, they, they read so can, canonical works by women from the 1970s, 80s, who are female writers, They're, but they don't come back. I mean, the only book would be Finding Aziza, which was published in the 1990s, and that seems to be like the thing that women hold on to for many, many years to come. Um, but women writers, literary writers, they're still like literary. They, they don't, they're not a big figure in Malay literature. Um, so um, the Indonesia, these books don't travel very well to Indonesia. Perhaps Ways of Longing does. Um, and, um, and I think to talk about polygamy and how that would change my conclusions, um, I, I haven't actually thought about that very much. Um, I'm running out of time, and I'm kind of like, the cock is ticking. Um, you know, I did share at the beginning of my lecture that a majority of women do accept it, um, in, you know, that it's permissible in Islam. However, they wouldn't be able to accept it in their own lives. And how that changes in the fiction is, you know, um, there, there are different ways to revision that, I suppose. Um, yeah. I don't really know how to answer that question for now. Um, and, um, yeah, there, there are no canonical works like, you know, the level of Hamka coming back. Even the first Malay novel, which was published in 1925, um, that has become sort of like this forget, you know, it's more or less forgotten now. It's really hard to get this book in a bookshop. Unlike in Indonesia, when you go to Jakarta, the Gramedia, you could buy books, you know, um, by Hamka, but you can't buy a book by Sheikh Al-Hadi. That's the reality of the literary market. It's sort of like old stuff, they just disappear. It's mostly new things that seem to come out of a literary vacuum. Sorry, that's kind of... Well, I we'll think... talk about this well, Yes, I can see that there are a lot of people who want to talk more yeah. with you, and we'll give them a chance to do so after we give you a warm thank you for a wonderful presentation. Thank Thanks. you so much for staying. <laughs>